Find a Bible, take one out, turn one on. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 to verse 18. This is the third Sunday that we have devoted to looking at John's prologue. And this morning we get to look at verse 14. More than one commentator looks at John 1, 14 as the climax or the pinnacle of the prologue where John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we're going to work our way through this passage this morning. I, I want to start with a few basic ideas. The reason I want to start with some of the ideas I've chosen this morning is that when John the Apostle sat down and wrote this gospel, he assumed that his readers had read the Old Testament and he assumed that his readers had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He could have easily just reproduced what Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of took and shaped into different forms, but it's very, very similar. He completely went in a different direction. And he's assuming that you've read those Gospels, that you know those stories, and he's assuming that you've read the Old Testament. So I just want to make sure that we're all square on a couple of the things John is assuming that you already know. So number one, let's talk about John the Baptist. He was six months older than Jesus, and he began his public ministry before Jesus began his public ministry. You remember we said last week that in the fourth gospel, the name John always refers to John the Baptist. He doesn't ever call him John the Baptist, but when you read the name John in the fourth gospel, we're not talking about John who wrote this book, but we're talking about John the Baptist. He was born a few months before Jesus. He was part of Jesus's family, extended family, and he began preaching before Jesus began preaching. And John, the author of this gospel, assumes that you know that. So we just want to make sure we have that on the table. Secondly, John 1.14, it uses the word dwelt. And it's an intentional reference to the tabernacle. You can read about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It looked something like this. It was placed in the middle of Israel's camp. The different tribes were assigned to camp on different sides of the tabernacle. And it was supposed to set up and face a certain direction. And there was a holy place. And in the most holy place, they had the ark. And inside the ark, they kept the Ten Commandments. And this is where they would offer the sacrifices. This is where they would do many of the rituals and bring their offerings. Sort of the religious center of Israel's life before they were settled in the promised land as they wandered place to place to place. And when John uses this word dwelt, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. You've heard many pastors or Bible teachers say this. What he's saying is he tented among us. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Those words are all connected in the original languages and he does that on purpose. He could have just said the word became flesh and here he was. But he says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and he uses a word that all of his readers would have said dwelt among us. You mean like the tabernacle. And John's saying exactly, just like the tabernacle. So he assumes that you know that. Thirdly, the end of John's prologue clearly identifies the word as Jesus Christ, the only son from the father. And I'll just admit, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first part of John's prologue. We've been cheating a little bit, right? John starts off and he talks about the word. He talks about this life. He talks about light. But he never really tells us exactly who that is. And we've sort of looked ahead to the end of the script and 
gone backwards and pieced the, uh, the puzzle pieces together, connected all the dots. It's only when you get to verse 14 and the word, who is the life, who is the light, this word becomes flesh and he dwells among us and we've seen his glory as the only son from the father. And you keep reading down into verse 17 that he's talking about Jesus Christ. It's only when the word becomes flesh that we start to talk about Jesus Christ. Christ. And John is finally connecting all those dots. And just so there's no confusion that we know the word is Jesus, look what he says in verse 14. He says, the word became flesh. And at the end of that verse, he says he was full of grace and truth. When the word took on flesh, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And if you look down at verse 17, it says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. And he repeats that phrase, grace and truth, so that there's no debate. There is no argument. No one can raise any other possibility about who the word is. And he's connecting those two ideas and he's telling us the word is Jesus. When the word took on flesh, that was Jesus. The big idea is really simple. The big idea of our our passage, verse 14 to 18. Jesus is the word become flesh. He is the full revelation of God and his glory. Jesus, the human being, the eternal creating word who took on human flesh and became a man, that person is the fullest and the final revelation of God himself. And to see him is to see God's glory, to behold his glory. And John makes that point in this passage. It's a unique glory. It's a glory that he doesn't share with anyone else. And we're going to build up to that this morning. Let's just read our passage one more time. John 1, 14 to 18, and then we'll jump in. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I want to talk to you just for a minute about church history big picture view of church history. And I just want to lay out to you two different ways that people in 2019 in the United States tend to think about church church history. The first view I'm going to describe to you is what you would probably see if you go home. It's We're right on the the verge of Easter season. There's going to be all sort of history channel, special documentaries about Jesus. So you turn on the history channel. This is the view of church history that you're going to find. This skeptical view of church history says... When we look back through the centuries, what we see is power struggles within the church. Power groups fighting each other. And I'm not talking about power groups arguing about the color of the carpet. I'm talking about way bigger stuff than that, okay? Power struggles in the church. And they look back and they say, you know, over church history, doctrine has sort of been refined and narrowed and at times changed and at times sort of shifted and altered. 
And the reason that that happened wasn't that they were really concerned about one lasting, unchanging truth. The reason that's happened in church history is that people are concerned about their own power and their own position. They were looking out for themselves. And so when this teacher began to be too popular and attract too much of a following, those who were in power felt threatened, and so they labeled that person as a heretic and excluded them from the church. Right? It's not about, in church history, it's not about standing up for the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's about protecting your position. And if a guy named Arius rises up as a teacher in the early church and starts saying things that are, are new and innovative about Jesus, it's not so much that you care about his doctrine. You just look at Arius and you say, that guy's a threat to me. And so we're going to draw a new line and we're going to keep him out. You understand the concern is not with the truth or doctrine or the scriptures. The concern is with your own position and your own power. That's a skeptical view. Here's a biblical view of what's happened throughout church history. The Bible says that wolves are going to come and they're not going to be dressed like wolves. They're going to dress like sheep. And the Bible says that false shepherds are going to come. Hired hands are going to come. And they're, they're not going to wear a label that says I'm a false teacher or a, a hired hand or a, a disingenuous shepherd. They're going to look and they're going to pose like real shepherds. And the job of those who follow Jesus Christ is to fight. Jude uses the word fight to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Not so that you can protect your position of power and influence and, and your political little dominion. That's not the, the end game. The end game is fighting for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And new false teachers are going to come. And every time they come, you're going to have to respond in a new way. And it's not that you're making up doctrine or changing doctrine. It's that you're responding to different false teachers differently. And I'll just give you one example of how this has played out. I'll put some names and some dates on the screen. Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. These are the four first ecumenical church councils. I don't use the word ecumenical to mean they were watering down doctrine and they were just trying to all get along. That's how we use it today. That's not what this is about. Ecumenical means everyone was invited. They invited everyone to come and have a voice and, and to say, how are we going to sort through this new issue that's come to the forefront? And the issues at each, uh, each council, each conference were essentially the same. There was a new teacher saying new things about Jesus. And the church gathered together at these councils to say, do we believe this or not? How, what is the position of the church? And this is what's fascinating. Each of these four councils, they're wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? All four of them. Who is he? How are we supposed to think about him? What does the Bible say about him? And at each of these four councils, they left saying different things about Jesus. They weren't changing doctrine. They were responding to new false teaching. Essentially, what they were doing at each of these councils is saying, we're getting together, we're, we're putting this question on the table, who is Jesus? Is he who this teacher says he is? No, he is absolutely not. And they sort of draw a line. They're not trying to protect their position or power. They're contending for the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And each time a new false teaching arises, they have one of these councils and they get together and they say, no, 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 no. Let us be clear about what we believe about Jesus. We don't believe that. New false teaching requires new responses. And you say, this is all fascinating. I'm ready for History Channel Easter season. 
What does it have to do with John 1? Here's what it has to do with John 1. Gospel of John chapter 1, these first 18 verses. We're reading about this question, who is Jesus? That's what John is starting with. Who is Jesus? And particularly when you get to verse 14, it's laid out so clearly. We're dealing with the incarnation, with God becoming man. We are looking at the most remarkable miracle that has ever happened in all of church history. And we're doing it from the position of creatures, finite beings, looking at this mystery, this miracle of the incarnation, and we're trying our best to wrap our arms all the way around it. Finite creatures trying to think about an infinite miracle. And as we do that, we're trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? Now listen, we're going to use some words that come straight out of the Bible. We're going to use other words that you will not find in the Bible, words like trinity, We use those words not because we're adding, not because we're making things up, not because we're trying to exclude people just to be mean and protect ours. We're using these words to try to be clear. This is what John is saying about Jesus. And this false teacher has risen up and said this, and we say, no, 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 that's not what the Scripture says. There's a response to that. This false teacher rises up and says this, and we say, no, that's not it. And guess what? In our lifetimes, it's still happening. There's new people saying new things about Jesus, about the Bible. They continue to sort of dream up these false doctrines, and our job is to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and say, no, 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 this is what the Scripture says about Jesus. And so we're going to wade into these waters this morning. What does John want us to know about the incarnation? Number one, in the incarnation, the Word became human without ceasing to be God. We're about to talk about some really big ideas. And just track with me. Do not lose step with me. What John is saying is that in the incarnation, the eternal creating word became human, and he did not cease to be God at the same time. Verse 14, the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The word became flesh. That word he uses there for flesh is just the most crass base, almost crude word to say this infinite, eternal being described earlier, the Word, he took on meat, flesh and bones, and he became a human. John is not saying it looked like he was human, but he was really Superman in disguise. John is not saying he just pretended to be a human and he tricked everyone. He actually became human without ceasing to be God. And to make sense of that, we throw in a couple of more doctrines. I'm just going to lay these on you quick. The doctrine of the Trinity. God is one in essence and three in person. That's where the church has landed throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, in defining the Godhead, the Trinity. There is one God. He is one in essence. There are not three gods. Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, says, no, there's multiple gods. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're different. Orthodox Christianity says, absolutely no, there is only one God. He's one in essence. But we also recognize that the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as being God. So he's one in essence, three in person. We add to that the person of Christ, and we'd say this. There are two natures united in one person. The person of Christ, two Natures, a human nature and a divine nature, united together in one person. Not 50-50, not one pretending to be the other, 
not one over sort of overtaking the other or dominating the other, but two different natures united in one person, a divine nature and a human nature in one person, the person of Christ. Let me be clear about what he's not saying, okay? Because sometimes we just say things, we pray things, we think things that get a little bit off base. Nowhere in John 1 or in the Bible will you read the idea that God the Father became a man. That's not what's taught. You'll never read that the Holy Spirit became human. You read the second member of the Trinity, the Word, took on flesh. It's the Son who became human. Never in the Scriptures will you read the idea that when He became human, when the Word became flesh, that He stopped being God. And then later he picked that back up, maybe after the resurrection. That's not what the scriptures say. He was both fully human and fully God. Never in the scriptures will you read the idea that these two natures like blended together, fused together, and he became a third thing entirely. Never will you read that he wasn't really human. He was really and truly human, and he was also really and truly God. Our job is to accept that by faith. And if you're tracking along with me right now, you have a headache, and you're saying, I need to go home and take a nap, and I don't understand how that math works. I mean, I passed the the star test or the toss test or whatever the test was when you took it. You say, I passed the math section of that, but I don't understand this math. Three and one and two and one, and that doesn't make sense. I don't expect it to make a whole lot of sense. You're finite. I'm finite. Um, We're talking about an infinite being. We're talking about an eternal being. We're talking about the greatest, most mysterious miracle that's ever happened in the history of mankind. Why would you and I think that we can fully get it? We're not going to fully get it. That's okay. You accept it by faith. Christianity is not something that you can just boil down to math equations. and It's not just something you can boil down to sort of doctrinal formulations. At some point, faith kicks in and you say... You're asking me to believe in a God who had no beginning? No one made him? I can't wrap my arms around that, but if that's what the Scripture says, I'll believe it. You're asking me to believe that there's one God, but that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all fully God? I don't know how to make that formula work, but I'll believe it if that's what the Scripture says. You're asking me to believe that the second member of the Godhead, God the Son, took on human flesh and really was a human being? Not like wink, wink, just pretend, but he was really human while also being God? I don't know how to sort of get my arms all the way around it, but if that's what the Scripture says, then I'll believe it. Why does it matter? I want to answer this question for you. Why does the doctrine of the incarnation matter? All this theological math. I'm going to give you answers. But first I just want to say this, just as a a baseline, okay? The doctrine of the incarnation matters because it's true. And that's enough. We could just skip this part of the sermon, really. And we could say it matters because it's true. And the Bible says it's true. And that's enough. That's That's all we need. But for many of us in the United States, truth is no longer enough. What we're looking for is usefulness, utility. You see this in the political realm, right? There's not a whole lot of politicians that seem to be interested in facts or in truth just for itself. What they're looking for is, how can I use that for my advantage? 
How can I use that statement, whether it's true or not, to hurt my opponent? And the truth really has no place in any of it. It's just a big sort of contest to see who can hurt somebody else. Unfortunately, that same game gets played out in churches. Many, many pastors, many churches have no concern with the truth for the sake of the truth. They're just concerned with, give me something I can use. And even if it's not really true, if it helps me, if it makes my life better, if it helps me manage my finances better, if it makes my marriage better, or if I think it can do any of those things, I'll take it because I just want something useful. I just want something practical. And John is telling us, this matters because it's true. Yes, I'm about to tell you why it's important and the benefit of it, but it matters simply because it's reality. Look what John says in verse 14. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We've seen it. I looked on it with my own two eyes. I'm not making this up. In the book of 1 John, he goes even further, and he says, We've heard it with our ears. We've seen it with our eyes. We, we touched Him with our hands. This is real. This is not just abstract doctrine. This is not just theory out in the air. This is not just sort of a fable or a a good moral story that's going to help you feel better about eternity. This is real life. It's real history. It really happened. The Word became flesh and we saw Him. We looked at Him. It really, really happened. And that's enough for it to matter. As God's creatures, we want to think rightly about who He is. And if this is what He says happened, then it matters. And we believe it. It also matters for our salvation. Why does the doctrine of the incarnation matter? Three reasons. Jesus had to be human in order to be tempted. Number one. Jesus had to be human in order to be our sacrifice. Number two. Jesus had to become human in order to be our example. Number three. The doctrine of the incarnation matters if you and I are ever going to be forgiven of our sins. For Jesus to be tempted, he had to be a human being. For Jesus to be our sacrifice, he had to really be human. For Jesus to be an example that we can look to and fix our eyes upon, he really had to be human. All of those truths are gospel truths. If you look at those truths and you say, eh, boring, I need something more practical, There's a fundamental problem in the way you think about God and the way you think about yourself. The Bible says that the one true God, one in essence, three in person, that God is holy. And the Bible says you and I are not. We're sinners. And Isaiah 59.2 describes it so perfectly. It says your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins separate you from the holy God. And there's not a thing you can do to fix that problem. You cannot bridge that divide. You cannot bring yourself back into good graces with God. You need someone to do it for you. And if that's going to happen, the person who stands in our stead has got to be fully God and really and truly human. That's why the doctrine of the incarnation matters. Listen, Jesus had to be tempted. You and I face temptation and we fail We sin. We fall short. What we need is righteousness. We need the the record to be written about us that says we perfectly obeyed. And that's not what our record says. 
But when Jesus came as a human being, the Bible says God cannot be tempted with evil, so the Word takes on flesh, and He truly faces temptation. You understand, that stuff with Satan in the wilderness, it was not just a game. It was not just going through motions. It was real temptation. He faced temptation. Why? Because we faced it and failed. He faced it and obeyed. And he earned the righteousness that we need. That's not possible unless he's human. We needed a sacrifice. We needed somebody to take our wrongs and to pay the penalty for our wrongs. And the book of Hebrews spells it out. It says bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and and doves and and animals, they they can't take care of sin. You're human. The blood of bulls and goats are not going to take away your sin. You need a human being to stand in your place because you're a sinful human being. That's Jesus. He became a human being so he could be a sacrifice that truly provided atonement for your sins and for my sins. And we need an example. We need somebody to look to. We need somebody to follow. We need a champion to set up before us. We don't need an angel. We need somebody like us. And the book of Hebrews says he became like us. He offered this sacrifice on our behalf. He faced every temptation on our behalf. And the result is, Hebrews 12, we can fix our eyes on him. We can look at him and say, do exactly that. Follow him. Follow Jesus. Apart from the incarnation, this great miracle that we, we can just barely begin to even circle our arms around, none of those gospel truths are truth at all. The incarnation matters. It matters because it's true. And it matters because Jesus was uniquely qualified to save us. Today's Super Bowl Sunday, in case you didn't know. Super Bowl's today. How many of you pulling for the Patriots? Show of hands. I'm pulling for the Patriots. All right, this is the noble remnant right here with hands in the air. Pulling for the Rams? You're in it for the food or the commercials? There you go. That's the majority. Food and commercials wins. Football game today, Patriots and the Rams. And anytime there's a big game, uh, sports radio just sort of gets to a frenzy. And Sports Center on TV, the talking heads, they get excited. And there's lots to debate and lots to argue about who's going to win, who has the advantage, who's the favorite, uh, who do the odds makers in Vegas put the smart money on, who do you bet for, who do you bet against, all those sorts of things. One of the questions that comes up every time the Patriots make the Super Bowl, which is just about every year, is, is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback who's ever played or not? And some of you, you roll your eyes, you say, I don't care one way or the other. I don't care about this guy. Some of you think, absolutely, he's the best, he's the GOAT, he's the greatest of all time. Some of you say, no, anybody else could have done it in his position. And it's an interesting debate to think about, is he uniquely different than every other person who has ever played the game of football? What if the Patriots, 19 years ago, had drafted somebody other than Tom Brady? You know how many quarterbacks were drafted ahead of Tom Brady in the draft? Six. These are them. Chad Pennington, Giovanni Carmazzi, Chris Redman, T. Martin, Mark Bulger, and Spurgeon Wynn. All picked ahead of Tom Brady. Quarterbacks. Played in the NFL, some for a long time, some for just a very, very short time. What if teams would have picked Brady earlier and the Patriots would have ended up with Giovanni Carmazzi? Would they be the Patriots? Would they have won all these Super Bowls? Would they be in the Super Bowl every year? Would they win their division every year? Could you just have subbed in one of these guys into the same spot 
and had the exact same success? Or is there something unique about Tom Brady that it was just the right guy at the right time? Some people would look at it and they would say, you know, none of those guys could have done it. They weren't good enough. Had to have been Tom Brady. And you just got lucky and there you go. Other people look at it and say, no, if you'd have played with that coach and with that team and with those players around you and if you'd have been healthy for that long and all those things would have fallen into place, one of these other guys could have done it. And we can argue about it. And we can debate about it. And the sports radio guys will make a million dollars about it. And the talking heads on Sports Center will make a million dollars about it. And in the end, nobody really is going to know the answer to that question. You can have your opinion. You can feel very strongly about it. You can call into whatever talk radio show you want to call into and tell them why you're right and everyone else is wrong. But in the end, we don't know. And it's debatable. Here's what's not debatable. Jesus Christ the Word become flesh, is, was, and will always be uniquely qualified to be our mediator. No one else could have done it. No one else could have done it. And John is sort of coming to the end of this prologue. He's about to get into the actual story of Jesus' life. But he wants to make sure we understand right here at the end of the prologue, there is no debate about Jesus. He's one of a kind. No one else could have done what he did. And you and I desperately needed him to do what he did on our behalf. He is the full and the final and the complete revelation of who God is. Why? Because he is God. And his glory that we've seen with our eyes is unique. He doesn't share it with anybody else. It's unique. And he ends... This section of the prologue and what he's saying to us is Jesus, the Word made flesh, the eternal Son of God become human being. His glory is unique and it's greater than any others. And he just sets up a few possible contenders and he knocks them all down. Number one, he wants us to see that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the tabernacle. This is this illusion in verse 14 where he says he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us. And he's taking your mind back and he's saying, wait a minute, there was a time and a place where God dwelt with his people, the tabernacle. But he wants you to think and he wants you to remember, even when God dwelt in the middle of his people, there was a division. There was not free access into the presence of the Lord. They knew where he was. They knew he was with them. But they couldn't just waltz right in. They could only go in on certain days. And they could only go in under certain circumstances. And they could only send certain people in. There was this curtain dividing even the most holy of the the high priest from entering God's presence. There's this reminder, I'm with you, but your sin separates us from a true relationship. And John is saying something so much greater than the tabernacle has come. This is God, not just come to be with us, but God come to be one of us. It's the Word become flesh, and He's with us, and He became one of us. Secondly, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than John the Baptist. This is this idea we talked about earlier. John was born first. John started preaching first. But John always said, don't put me above Jesus. He, even though he came after me, even though he's sort of my baby cousin, he's far greater than me. And he says it right here in our passage. John bore witness about him and he said, this is the one. 
This is the one I'm telling you about. He comes after me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. He existed before me. We'll get to the end of of John's gospel, John chapter 17, and Jesus is going to be praying, and Jesus is going to pray, Father, the Son talking to the Father, Father, restore the glory that I shared with you before the world existed. He's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than the tabernacle. Thirdly, he's greater than Moses and the law. He's greater than Moses and the law. God used Moses to rescue the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. The story we're about to read is the story of God, the Father, using God the Son, Jesus, to rescue his people from slavery to sin. And if you have your Bible open, look what he says in verse 14. Right, the word became flesh, and he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We've talked about the truth side of that equation. That these things are true, and they matter because they're true. I want you to think about the grace side of it. When you read the Old Testament law, was it not true? It was true. It claims to be true. We believe that it's true. But in Jesus, we see a fuller truth, a truer truth, a fulfillment of the truth. You can read the Old Testament. If you have eyes to see it, there's grace on every page. It's a story of grace from beginning to end. In Jesus, we have a fuller experience of that grace. And John goes to great lengths in verse 16 to talk about this grace we have in Jesus. He says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. If you're not reading out of the ESV, that might be translated different. And it's translated differently because scholars really don't know what to do with that phrase. Right? To translate it literally just sounds a little bit crass. Literally what he's saying is we have grace piled up on top of grace. We have piles and piles of grace in Jesus Christ. This is why the Word became flesh. Yes, there's something true about it, and it matters. All of this matters because it's true. But this is the ultimate answer to the why question. Why give us this full revelation of God and His glory? It's because what we deserve from God is death. And what's been made available in Jesus Christ is piles and piles of grace. Grace is a church word we don't really stop to define sometimes, but it's just the idea that God gives you something you haven't earned. He treats you well when you deserve to be treated poorly. He's giving you the opposite of what would be your just due. What would be just and what would be right is to give you death. And what he gives you instead is grace. He gives you life. He sends the word to become flesh so that you can have life. It would be just and it would be right for him to leave us in our sin in darkness. And instead what he's done is he's shown light into our lives. It would be just and it would be right to be separated from him forever. And what he's done instead through Jesus Christ is he's given us grace and he's brought us near. This morning, as we come to the end of John's prologue, there's doctrine you need to begin to wrap your minds around. There's Old Testament connections and gospel connections you need to think through. There's all sorts of intellectual pieces to this passage that you've got to get. But the big takeaway is really, really simple. In Jesus Christ, there's grace. Not just a little bit. Not just enough, barely enough. 
There's piles and piles of grace. He's given his people grace piled up on top of grace. He's given us life. He's given us light. 